If you have your Bibles, turn them to uh, Psalm 22. And uh, as a follow-up to our sermon series on the life of Elisha the prophet, and especially last, East, the last Sunday, which was Easter Sunday, what I thought would be good is to talk a little bit about what it looks like to live in the light of the resurrection of Christ. And you might think it odd that I would pick Psalm 22 because it's a very uh, dark and uh, dreary and sad and grief-ridden psalm uh, that points us directly to the cross. But I think that the resurrection, as I've said over throughout the Elisha series, if you don't see the resurrection in light of the cross, uh, then it starts to... Uh, get a little fuzzy. Protestants historically have run away from the cross. Now you may not think that's true, but look at our cross. There's no Christ up on the cross. And we like that. We like the fact that Jesus is risen. But the cross is central to our faith. And so it, it, it behooves us to look at the resurrection and all that we talked about last week, especially in light of, I think, uh, what went on at the cross. And so, uh, what I'm going to do is read a portion of Psalm 22. It's a long psalm. And, uh, and show you some things that I think will be very helpful. So let's take a look at it. Psalm 22. And now hear the Word of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. Yet you are He who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws and you lay me down in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But You, O Lord, do not be far off. 
O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. This is the word of the Lord. In his preface to the commentary on the Psalms, John Calvin said this, and I've shared this with you before. It's a beautiful quote about John Calvin's impression of the Psalms. Listen to this. It is my custom to call this book, Book of Psalms, an anatomy of all parts of of the soul, since there is no emotion anyone will experience whose image is not reflected in this mirror. Indeed, here the Holy Spirit has drawn to the life all pains, all sorrow, all fear, all doubt, all hope, all care, all anxieties. In short, all the turbulent emotions with which our minds are commonly stirred. In Psalm 22, David's eloquent but disturbing experience is a prophetic foreshadowing of the cross. But it's also a prophetic foreshadowing of an incredible victory. A victory that is only, only seen through the lens of the horror of the cross. You see in the first 21 verses, which I just read, the apparent victory of the wicked. Here, David is experiencing the full uh, uh, conquest of the wicked. They're winning, and he is losing. Now, he's not thinking of Jesus on a cross, we have that advantage of being able to look back. But David's life was filled with trials and tribulations, filled with uh, oppression. He had enemies galore up until the day he died. And you can see in this psalm his torment, his disorientation, his darkness over an apparent victory of his enemies. But then in the end, and we'll look at this in detail in a moment, from verse 22 to the end is the actual victory. It becomes David's song, his song of salvation and restoration. And again, that is fully realized, of course, in Jesus. In his little commentary on the Psalms, Derek Kidner wrote this, and I love this. He says, 1 through 21, this first section that we just read, is marked by a throbbing, listen to how he uh, expresses it, I love this, a throbbing alteration of I and me sections of increasing length and width with you sections of increasing urgency and immediacy. The pattern changes though in verse 22 from this alteration to a rapidly expanding, it's a song, a rapidly expanding circle of praise and adoration. And so this morning we're going to look at three things very quickly. Here's your outline for this morning. How do we enter the turbulence, 
that follows something as glorious as the resurrection. How do we enter that? Because it's great. We get high. We get excited. The resurrection. And we blow trumpets. And we are not, now all of that is good. And I'm all for it. But then we come down to real life. And real life is very turbulent. It's a combination of joy and sorrow. Of victory and apparent defeats. Of trial and struggle. And sometimes wonderful, amazing, miraculous things. But it's that confluence, that turbulence that can be hard, very hard to negotiate and to make your way through it. So we're going to look at entering the turbulence, harnessing its power. You see, turbulence, there's a lot of power. And we'll look at that in a second. And finally, how to sing the song that comes with of that turbulence that we see in this psalm. So entering the turbulence. These are the the first 18 verses, actually. You know, my younger son, Daniel, many of you know, uh, he was uh, the director of outdoor rec at Kirtland Air Force Base for nine years. And what that, for those of you that are in the Army, that's like uh, MWR. It's their recreational services for the uh, servicemen and women and their families. And at Kirtland... Daniel was the director of that, so his job was to take uh, people out on tours and they would go snowboarding and they would go skiing and they would go mountain climbing and rock climbing and uh, it was really a very uh, tough job that he had. And uh, he would take these, these tours and one of the things they did is they would go whitewater rafting and he had to get certified to do this and and uh, they would go whitewater rafting, and the place they went is a, a place some of you know, up in the upper Rio Grande, uh, south of Taos, uh, north of uh, Albuquerque, um, a place called White Rock Canyon, and there's a section of it they call the race course, and then there's the upper box canyon. And uh, there's some very wicked rapids in this part of the Rio Grande. You, you see it down here, and it's kind of sluggish and just kind of lopes along with uh, it whenever there's water in it. But up there, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty radical. And, and um, uh, there have been a few times, in fact, the story I'm going to tell you in a second, happened in one of those years where those rapids were class 4 and class 5. Those of you that know, there, were, there, were, there, were, there was a period when you couldn't even get on the river up there. And this was back when Daniel uh, was leading this uh, tour uh, that was a bunch of Boy Scouts. Some Air Force officers and families and their Boy Scout troops, some dads. And uh, so Daniel gets all these uh, people together up there in the top of the river, and he tells them, now we're going to get on this. The water is really bad. It was actually running at about a class four. And what Daniel found out later was that they, were, they closed it a few days later because it, be, it became so unrunnable, they had to close it for about a month. But... They got on the river, and he, was, he saw it. He didn't like it. He didn't want to do it. But everybody was there, the Boy Scout troops and their dads. And so Daniel's giving them instructions on how to run these rapids that were very dangerous. And of course, the dads, being dads, and those of you that are dads, you know, we're very macho. We know everything. We don't want to listen to the director, the guy that's trained to run rapids. And so they're interrupting Daniel, and they're telling the boys what to do. And we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And Daniel's trying to tell the dads to be quiet. Please close your mouth. Listen, this is dangerous. Nobody would listen. The boys are listening. The Boy Scouts are listening, but their dads wouldn't listen. Sure enough, they get in the water. 
They go down the river, two rafts full of Boy Scouts and some very misguided parents. And you know the rest of the story. They hit a bad patch. The first raft got through, but Daniel's raft didn't make it. And as they hit the patch, they came up to a big rock, and Daniel is giving them instructions and telling the boys where to put their oars and and the dads where to put their oars. And the dads are going crazy and barking orders at the boys. And, And Daniel's telling the dads, please don't talk to the boys. Listen to me. Do what I'm telling you. They wouldn't listen. The dads are barking. Everybody's barking. The boys are throwing their oars in the air and screaming. They hit a rock. Over goes the raft. And everybody goes in the water. Some of the kids get to the shore. But one of the dads and three of the boys got caught under the rock with their life jackets on. But in that turbulent water, and those of you that have run rapids or maybe you've been in the surf and you've been caught in a riptide, doesn't matter if you have a life jacket on or not, right? just doesn't matter. Pulls you down, holds you down, drowns you. And Daniel got to the shore and he looks back and he sees this rock and he sees these kids and he sees the dad there helpless and they're all drowning. So he goes back in the water and he rescues all of them. Brings them all to the shore. He got a commendation. David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? David had entered one of the many periods where the turbulence of his life was dragging him down. His enemies had surrounded him and were crushing him, and his life was in danger. You know, in our political system, when a, when a, a leader loses an election or something, the next guy comes in, no problem, and, and they just it keeps on going. We are shocked. Whenever we uh, have had an assassination in our country and one of our leaders has been killed, it's, it's rocked us. But in much of the world and in the ancient world, that's how the transfer of power went. Even today. You kill the leaders. You wipe them out. You destroy their party. And then you take over by power and by force. And this is the world David lived in. And he was under threat throughout his uh, kingship. He was never safe until the very end. Even then, he transferred power to Solomon and his other older son, Abijah, led a coup against Solomon. And David died in that kind of turmoil. Unbelievable. There's a deep sense of woe and grief in Psalm 22 because that's the world that David lived in. A world that is very disorienting, folks. The familiar and protective and favorable presence of God, sometimes it feels like it's been withdrawn. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes it feels like it's just not there. I've been there personally. I know many of you have been there. Maybe you're there now. I don't know. When you just wonder, you know, we oh, that Chuck, he talks so much about the resurrection, so great, so great. Yes, it is great. 
But then what do you do when turbulence is coming? When you're being pulled down? When you feel like, where is the resurrection? When you feel like Elisha stepping up to the Jordan River with this mantle and you're, you're looking at the river and everybody's there, all the prophets are there watching to see if in fact you got the double portion. And he takes his mantle and he hits the water and says, where is the God of Elijah? And thankfully the water moved and he was able to come across and they all went, wow, that's pretty cool. And of course he did take up the mantle of his mentor. But there were periods in Elisha's life, in Elijah's life, our Lord Jesus' life, and in our life when that turbulence is so strong, those currents are pulling us down. Tragedy and suffering, confusion, it spills out. Our tranquility is shattered and we're crying out. What what do we cry out in those times? We cry out this cry. Why? 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 The description is vivid. It's graphic. It's complex. How do you negotiate? How do you get through that excruciating agony? That feeling which is very common in Christianity, of abandonment. Even when we have all of these promises, I mean, we have a Bible full of promises, and yet there are some dark times. What do you do? Look at how how David uh, put this poem together, this beautiful song. He was an artist of the highest... I don't know how you combine in one human being an artist with the sensitivity and the tender heart that David had, and yet he could go kill 300 Philistines without the blink of an eye. How do you find that combination in one human being? Well, we see it again in Jesus, but wow, David was something else. He was a warrior, a fierce warrior. And at the same time, he would sing and praise and he would weep and he would write beautiful poetry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at, look at the throbbing alternation that goes on. Oh, uh, it, it's majestic. Yet, you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel and your fathers trusted. This is verse 3-5. through five. Then look what happens in verse 6. But, I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned, I'm despised, I'm mocked. They say, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Yet, Look at what happens in verse 9. The, the alternation back and forth. You can almost see him in the water getting thrown and crushed and smashed against the rocks. Back and forth, dragged under, pulled, torn apart. His experience is ours. Yet, you took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my father's breast from birth. You have been my God. Be not far from me. Trouble is near. There's no one to help me. Back and forth, pulling. And then he he cries out this very graphic, very descriptive. It's like he's, he's stepping out of himself and looking at what's happening to him from another place. In verse 12-18, through it's hard to read. It's hard to even... And I can't read it all again, but look what he says. I'm surrounded by bulls. They gape their mouths. The ravening lions. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is melted like wax. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my mouth. 
dogs. Bulls encompass me. They're circling me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. This is a real man. This is a man. This is a real person. This isn't the syrupy Christian person that you say, how you doing? And oh, I'm doing good. Praise the Lord. You know, there isn't any of that here. This is a man that is true. He's honest. He's saying this is life. It's turbulent. One moment I'm being surrounded by dog. The next moment I'm, I'm remembering you. You're the one that kept me. You're holy. You have, you've taken me from my childhood till now. You've been faithful to me. But, yet, but you can feel what's going on in his life. David's life. Our life. Radical. Unfettered joy. Nobody could express joy. It was almost as if he was bipolar or manic or something. One minute he's all excited about God and the next minute he's saying, my God, where are you? And what I'm telling you is that is true humanity. And everybody, Christian or not, doesn't matter who the human beings are in this world, everyone experiences life this way. And everyone is asking why. Why? David was a man after God's own heart. This is what the Bible says of him. He was the apple of God's eye. Can you imagine? If that's, if that's the person that God looks at and says, wow, this is a person. This is how I want you to be, people. This is what God is saying to us. I want you to be honest. Face reality for what it really is. Be able to express your grief, your sorrows, but also your joy and your victory, God's faithfulness and sometimes His apparent absence, and do it with integrity and honesty. And be around other people where you're safe. You know, the church is supposed to be that place where you can come and say, I'm not okay. I'm suffering. I'm depressed. I'm hurting. My life is on the rocks. I'm getting dragged down. Somebody help me. And sadly, church is often the last place you would go and actually trust anybody with that. Yes? You wouldn't dare. Because they'd look down their long nose at you and say, oh, well, they must, not, they must have some sin in their life. Or, the other one that I just, I can't say, well, what is God teaching you? And some of you have heard me say back to you and tell you, you are not in a classroom. That is not God's world for you, a classroom. That you're just constantly learning and learning and learning. Yes, you'll learn. But where are you? If you're not in a classroom, where does the Bible say you really are? You're in an embrace. Someone has come into the turbulence for you. Someone is holding you. Yes, you'll learn. We're going to learn. But that's not the primary place God has you. David understood that. David knew. And so he was free with his emotions. He was free to cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And then to harness its power. Look at verse 19 through 21. This is magnificent. But you, O Lord, 
Don't be far off. O you, my help, come quickly. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power that save me from the lion. Rescue. Rescue. You see, something happens in the middle of this psalm. David takes a turn. He takes a turn. The turbulence, it's almost as if he gets right into the middle of the turbulence and then he locks his arms onto something that is outside the turbulence. Something that is not throwing him back and forth. Something that is solid, a rock. Something that can anchor his soul. And he lays hold on that. And he says, but you, O Lord. And he never goes back again to the turbulence. The cry of abandonment, what we call the cry of dereliction, becomes a cry for salvation. And this, folks, is where many of us lose the battle. This is where we lose the battle. When you're in the turbulence, when you're in the confusion, when you're disoriented, when it seems as if you're abandoned, if you become angry and fear takes hold of your heart and confusion starts to wrap itself and coil itself around your mind and crush you, and you become indifferent to God, You become cold towards Him and you say, I guess He's not listening. I guess He doesn't care. I guess He doesn't love me. I guess He's not going to answer me. What difference does it make? I won't bother. I won't pray. I won't do any more. I'm just going to be a brat. And I'm going to become indifferent to God. We refuse to pray. We refuse to hope. We refuse to worship. We quit coming to to church. We quit calling our friends. We sit and we pout and we sulk. And we get angry at God. We shake our fist at the Almighty. There's no more back and forth. It's just accusation. And what's almost humorous is the people that accuse Him the most are Generally, people that say He doesn't exist. Atheists. They love to say, oh, what? I can't believe in God. Look at all the bad that's in the world. Well, what kind of an answer is that? You don't even believe in God. What do you care? Why blame Him? You don't believe in Him. But let me tell you this, folks. Listen. If you're getting in that you're in the turbulence you're getting banged around you're getting pulled down you're drowning if you let the bitterness the anger the fear the confusion turn you to embrace god yes argue with him yes tell him i can't i don't believe you're doing this to me why have you forsaken me yes tell him i'm scared to death here do you have a calendar up there by the way Have you looked for a minute down here? Do you know what's going on? Do your prayers sound like that with God? Well, that's what mine sound like. I don't know about you. I go up to I say, what's going on up there? Hello? 
Is anybody there? Right? But I don't give up. I don't walk away. I don't get bitter. I want to. Yes, I want to. But I won't do it, and I'm telling you not to do it. Stay engaged. Cling to Him. When I served communion, First Communion to the kids, some of you kids have taken First Communion from me. I always tell the children, <clears throat> no matter where life takes, when I'm serving in the body and blood of Christ, I tell them no matter where the future takes you. I don't know, you're little, you're here, you're getting the Holy Sacrament for the first time. I don't know where your life's going to take you. But wherever it takes you, whatever happens to you, run to Jesus, run to Him. Do not ever turn away from Him. No matter what you've done, no matter what happens to you, run back. But I don't understand. I mean, I sinned. I did something really bad. Run to Him. What in the world? How are you going to fix it? I was young once. (laughs) And now I'm old. But I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Yes? Amen? Never! I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Not when they turn to Him. If you let bitterness drive you away, you lose. If you let the turbulence, the power, if you harness its power, you can run to Jesus. It'll take you to Jesus. It'll take you to the rock. You can harness the power. Henry Skugal, who was, uh, I don't know, 17, 1800s, I don't remember. He said this, listen to this. The worth and excellency of a soul is determined and measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. What he's saying is this. If you measure your worth and your identity and your life, if you put it in a scale and you measure it according to everything around you, what's going on, what people say about you, how much money you have, how good your health is doing, how big your church is, how many people pat you on the back and tell you how great you are, how successful you are in your career, how great your children are turning out. Anything. Pick it. If you let that measure you, you're always going to be in the turbulence and it's going to be banging you from one place to another and pulling you down and drowning you. But if you set your sights, if you make that turn, if you lock on, like David, but you, O Lord, You are my help. If you let Him define you, David did always. This is why he is such a great person. Even after he sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery and murdered Bathsheba's husband to cover it up, he had the wherewithal and, and, the, and the presence of mind to go back to God and say these unbelievable words. It's shocking. 
Against you, you only have I sinned. (laughs) What about Bathsheba? What about the child that was going to die? What about the husband that was already dead? What about all that? No. David ran to Jesus and he said, You, but you. And I'll tell you something, folks. If you don't, I have to do it. And if I and I'm way more spiritual than any of you. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. But you get the idea, right? I mean, if we have to... Everybody has to do this. Otherwise, you're going to drown. How do you make that journey? How do you do it? How do you harness His power? And that's why this psalm is so great. Why David was so great. And why the foreshadowing of the greater person that he pointed to, his son, was so great. Look at verse, if you don't have your, it's not printed in your bulletin, so if you don't have a Bible, just listen. In fact, don't bother turning there. Just listen. Listen to his song. Here is David's song. Here's how he harnesses the power of the turbulence. He worships God. He sings. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Not the turbulence. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord. Praise now. He's, now he's talking to everybody out there. Anyone who will listen. You who fear the Lord, praise Him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the afflicted in their affliction. He has not hidden His face from Him. He has heard Him when He cried to Him. From you comes My praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. Do you notice He's not singing about Himself anymore? David, what His life, folks, listen, what His life approximated Jesus accomplishes and it's no wonder and it's no mistake that these are the words our Savior was singing don't think he only sang verse 1 and 2 don't imagine in your mind that that's where he stopped from the cross he sang this song And it's why He defeated the dogs. Those who circled Him. Those who pierced His hands and His feet. Why? So that a generation that would come, you, 
me could bask in the calm waters of the resurrection. Look back at the turbulence of the cross and see Jesus there for you, as you, taking your place. Not so that you would never have turbulence in your life. Not so it would never come. But so that it, when it did come, you could sing this song. I'll finish with John Calvin. Probably my favorite quote from the great Reformer. For in the cross of Christ, for in the cross of Christ as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures high and low. But never, but never more brightly than in the cross in which there was an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men was manifested. Sin was blotted out. Salvation restored to mankind. In short, the whole world was renewed and all things restored to order. Praise be to Christ for His cross and His resurrection. Let's pray. Father, please help us to trust You. Please help us to look to You in the turbulence of the Sunday after Easter when all of life starts to come rushing back and turning us around and pulling us down. And we cry out, where are You? Why have You forsaken me? Turn our eyes to that One on the cross who cried out, my God, my God, why have You forsaken me? So that we can find refuge in Him, the King. Lord Jesus, help us. We pray. Amen.